0: Well, everybody, I hope you are enjoying this beautiful fall of ours (coughs) and uh, beautiful weather and this raking of the leaves. Um, I know that we're all (coughs) proud of, fall into traditional things at certain times of the year, so I'm going to shake up our tradition this morning and um, we're going to sing our song at the end of the lesson instead of at the beginning. So it depends on how much time we have left, depends on how long of the song we're going to sing. So uh, uh, those of you who are into uh, uh, traditions and routine, I'm going to shake that up a little bit this morning. So Rachel, you can have a seat. We'll pick up at the end. But we are going to start off with prayer and uh, prayer and praise uh, to God. We want to continue to keep the uh, Pickin family in mind and pray for them. Uh, We want to uh, pray for Micah and his job situation. Uh, Hopefully that uh, the Lord would bless him with a job to provide for his family and to allow him to be here on the Lord's Day. (coughs) Continue to pray for our nation. We see a lot of continuous unrest, particularly anti-Semitism. Uh, We pray, Lord, for peace, and we pray uh, for a revival to spread through the land. Uh, uh, Continue to pray for peace in Israel. Remember Lisa's cousin and her kids who are right in the middle of all this. Uh, Pray for their safety. Uh, Pray that they might uh, be a use of God uh, in that place. Uh, Continue to pray for Lisa's sister Cindy as she's in a lot of pain uh, and nobody seems to be able to figure out why. And we want to celebrate the uh, birth of baby Colette and pray that uh, Melissa recovers well and uh, restore her health. So those are things on my list. Um, Do you have something else you want to add? Prayers or praise? My wife is getting better, so that's a praise. She was saying she was thankful for our family gathering that we prayed for on Wednesday, and um, we have some family issues that uh, are there, but uh, we believe that perhaps some bridges were built and some um, connections were made. So we, we thank God for that. Yeah. Everybody got together? Yeah. And everybody's healthy? Yeah. Good. Good. Yeah. Take these things before our Lord in prayer. Lord God, you are a good God, a gracious God, and an awesome God. As we gather together as your visible church, we come together with one heart to uh, offer up uh, our souls and our bodies and our minds uh, to the service of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Lord God, we pray this day that you would send your spirit to dwell with us, to direct our thoughts and our minds, be with the teachers and the pastors as they present the word. We ask, Lord, that you would uh, hear the cries of your people that have been mentioned, these burdens that we carry. Uh, Lord God, we pray that your will would be done on all those that have been mentioned. Uh, We pray that your... uh, mercies would be bestowed upon those who are on beds of affliction, those who are carrying heartaches, such as this one uh, uh, fellow worker of Micah's. We pray, Lord, that um, this might be an opportunity for him to share the gospel. We pray, Lord, as well, for the blessings of the little ones. We thank you for the new baby and and the blessings of life that you have uh, bestowed upon this family. We pray, Lord, that you would Give them the burden to raise this little one up in the love and admonition of the Lord. We thank you for praising your name. We thank you, Lord, for the uh, family gatherings with uh, uh, Ken and Jan's family. and We thank you, Lord, for uh, the gathering at our house and and the bridges that were built. We pray, Lord, that you would uh, add those family members who are lost to your kingdom. We carry these burdens for our loved ones. We pray that you would um, plant the seeds, and others would water, and others would harvest. So, Lord, we know that you work in many different ways to add people to your to your kingdom. And so, we pray that you would do so with these family members. We ask you, Lord, to be with uh, Lisa's family, and as uh, they are in Israel and the difficulties that they face and the challenges. And, Lord, uh, you've commanded us so often in your Word do not fear, fear not. And Lord, we pray that that would bring a peace to their heart. We pray even at this difficult time uh, that they might turn to the one and only uh, Savior that uh, will uh, answer their cries and answer their prayers, Jesus Christ. We ask the Lord as well to be with Cindy as she's going through this painful, difficult time. We ask that you would uphold her. That, Lord, you would give the doctors wisdom to give uh, answers to her questions. We pray, Lord, again for the Pickin family. We pray that your will would be done in their life. That you would grant them strength and love and compassion. That, Lord, whatever the outcome, uh, you would be praised. And we pray, Lord, that uh, uh, as we come into this Sabbath day, that we would have a humble heart and beseech your face in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> well, last week we talked about the Nazarite vow and what all that entailed as it applies to the uh, people in the scripture uh, that were Nazarites. Um, this could be a man or a woman. <clears throat> taking a vow before God. And um, I also wanted to emphasize last week the pattern for which we've been studying the book of Judges, that God will offer a command or a promise, and then man will respond by either obeying or disobeying, and then God will evaluate man's actions and uh, either uh, bless him or judge him and if it's a judgment then it's usually another country that comes in to control um, the country of Israel and the oppression is usually so great that after a while uh, there's a great crying out by the people uh, uh, a sense of repentance uh, a turning back to their first love uh, forsaking the false gods And then God would usually raise up a judge, and that judge would then uh, lead the country of Israel to victory uh, over their oppressors. And then uh, God is often gracious enough to bless the next couple of generations. Um, This has been going on now for over 300 years. Um, If you think about it, that's older than our country. And so it's been taking place over a long period of time in our judgment. It's a long period of time. Not so in God's judgment. But we're about to see something totally different. Different uh, uh, in a couple of different respects. And um, so as we approach the uh, study on uh, Samson, uh, we pray that you... can be on push, button, push. So we're going to um, start looking at um, Judges chapter 13 and verse 1. Judges 13 and verse 1. It says, Now the sons of Israel again did evil... In the sight of the Lord. So that the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines 40 years. How often have we heard that phrase? The sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. He was very clear on his commandments. He was very clear on his promises. Um, as pastors pointed out in the book of Deuteronomy. And yet these people uh, would reject those and how, uh, how much are we like them? Uh, very similar, rejecting God and his promises. We see here oppression. Um, summarizing uh, what has already uh, been stated in Judges 10, 6 through 7. But there is nothing about repentance There's nothing in here about crying out to the Lord for deliverance. So this is different than what we've seen in the past. I don't know, maybe we're supposed to assume that Judges 10, uh, 7 through 16 applies to the Philistines' oppression. But all it really directly speaks about is the Ammonites and the Philistines aren't mentioned. So here in Judges 13, the passage, just by its silence, emphasizes the simple fact that man does not have or desires within himself to repent. If given to man, his choice, he's not choosing to repent. He's not choosing to seek after God. Repentance and salvation is all of God. And repentance and salvation... Is all of his grace. Ultimately, this has been true uh, each time that we've uh, viewed this roller coaster ride of the Israelites. But here we are now at the end of the decline of the period of Judges. And it is um, as if the people had hit rock bottom. There's no crying out just hit rock bottom. There's no repentance. Verse 2. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the family of Dananites, whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had borne no children. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, now you are barren and have borne no children, but you shall conceive and give birth to a son. Now therefore be careful not to drink wine or strong drink or any unclean thing. For behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And no razor shall come upon his head, and for the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to deliver Israel from the hands of the Philistine. Then the woman came and told her husband, saying, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. And I did not ask where he came from, nor did he tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and give birth to a son. And now you shall not drink wine, nor strong drink, nor eat any unclean thing. For the boy shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. At about this time, uh, most of the tribe of Dan had left their territory that God had given them and had moved north, rejecting the proper worship of God and rejecting the fact that they were supposed to conquer the land that God had given them. They had become totally apostatized about this time. and We'll read more about this in Judges 17 and 18. But Manoah and his wife were among the few remnants that were still in the land that God had given uh, the tribe of Dan. And they were faithful uh, and serving God in that place. Now as we approach this section, uh, this chapter, we're going to find that there are about three different themes that the author Uh, Works with through this chapter. And the first thing that he talks about here is the idea of new beginnings. New beginnings. And verse 5 highlights this by saying that Samson will begin to deliver Israel from the Philistines. That's different than what we've seen in the past, where God would raise up a judge and that judge would take the uh, Israelites to victory and peace would be in the land. Here we find that that's not going to be the case. That God will raise up Samson, but he will only begin this deliverance. It will not be completed. So this is a a difference that we've seen over the judges in the past. So what do you think God appeared to the woman rather than to her husband? Uh, he appeared to Zacharias when he told him about John the Baptist coming. Why do you suppose he went to the woman instead of the man? Any idea? Was it because the husband was an evil guy? Probably not. He. I think the purpose for going to the woman was because uh, he wanted to... Um, Instruct her as to how to raise her son. And this will bring up the second theme that the author is going to deal with here. And it has to do with the seed of the woman. God appears to the mother to instruct her on in how to raise her seed and how to raise her child. Similarly, God appeared to Rebekah, not to Isaac. To give instruction about the primacy of, of Jacob over Esau. Manoah's wife was barren. The salvation of the world is to come through the seed of the woman. But because of sin, some women are barren. Living in a sinful world, that's, that's an outcome of, of our sin. So how can the seed be born if, if, the, if this woman is going to be barren? only through God's miracle, only through God's work, and only through God's mercies. So we see that all three wives of the patriarchs in Genesis were barren. God had to open the wombs of Sarah, open the womb of Rebecca, and open the womb of Rachel. And the child that was born on the other side of the miracle In each case was a symbol of the seed spoken of back in Genesis. So we see that similar symbolism taking place here with the birth of Samson. All three mothers of the the permanent Nazarites in the Bible were barren. The mother of Samson as we see here before us. And... It required a miracle uh, for the birth of Samson. Um, Samuel's mother was barren and required to have a miracle performed for the birth of Samuel. And if you believe that John the Baptist was a Nazarite, then she, his mother was barren as well. So in each case, the uh, son who was set apart for extraordinary work and who was given extraordinary powers, powers of the Spirit, they were born of barren women and only came about through the miracles of God. And of course, the fulfillment of this theme of the seed of the woman comes to the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ, who was born of the ultimate barren womb, the womb of a virgin. So if you would look back through the genealogy in Matthew 1 through 17, uh, verses 1 through 17, chapter 1, you would see that there was a need for miracles because all these women in his uh, genealogy were barren. God had to work marvelous miracles in their lives. And as a result, the salvation of the world came through Jesus Christ, his son. But here in this section of Judges, we see that God is going to war. And he's raising up yet another Joshua, if you will. Another savior who brings salvation to his people. The child is be a Nazarite, and this is specified in terms of uh, what we talked about last week of for alcohol, forbidding the use of alcohol, avoiding death, uh, and ceremonial death. It mentions here unclean food, and of course the wearing of long hair. Avoiding unclean food was a sign to Israel not to eat And be like the pagan nations around them, Um, they were to be set apart from those people around them. If you mingle with them, if you intermarry with them, as Israel has done, and do not keep yourself separated and dedicated to God, uh, it makes compromising with the pagans easier. And it makes alliances with foreign nations uh, easier. And so one of the reasons God had commanded them not to do this. Samson's involvement with three Philistine women seems to involve this particular command of eating unclean food. And that is, by involvement with these foreign women... He was also forming alliances with wicked people. I, I Just a side note here uh, came to my mind, and I'm just going to throw it out and see what you think. Um, we note here that Samson's mother was not to drink alcohol or eat grapes while she was pregnant, The Bible assumes that Samson is already alive in the womb and thus already set apart as a Nazarite. Now this is one more line of evidence to show that from the moment of conception there is a new life in the womb, and so abortion is murder. But here's a question for you. Could we also say on the basis of this passage that if the child is to avoid sacramental unclean food in the womb, then the child also participates in sacramental food of Holy Communion in the womb. When Samson's mother ate grapes, they went to her baby as well as to her. When a Christian woman eats eats Christ's flesh and drinks his blood during the communion of the Lord's table, they go to her baby also. So when the baby is born, he is separated from the spiritual protection of the womb, kind of excommunicated, if you will, and must be baptized in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ before he can once again partake of the Lord's Supper. I don't know whether that's the case or not. It's just something that came to my mind. I have no answer. It's, it's above my theological pay grade. Um, but I put that out there. Maybe you have some thoughts, or maybe you can chew on it over lunch and uh, think about it. Any ideas, any thoughts? Yeah. Like I said, I have no answer for it. I just, it was a question I had in my mind. So. thank you. Yeah. So when you say eating by Christ of
1: Christ, blood, the first kingdom uh, came mind was transisting So is that what was being applied?
0: No, I think, it, it, I don't think there's anything special about eating the, the blood or the, you know, or that involved. It's just. As part of the question. Yeah. yeah right. Yeah. The woman, her name is not given, yeah. It
1: was about him being set aside as a Nazarite, and then probably just in practical terms, she was buried. She probably ran as much as she wanted and never expected to be directed. So, just from a practical sense, yeah. I
0: think that this probably meant from that point on, she was going to be, yeah. Okay, yeah.
1: Too far down the line.
0: Okay. All right. Just thoughts. I appreciate your input. All right. Button pusher. Verse eight. Then Manoah entered the Lord. And, uh, then Manoah entreated the Lord and said. O Lord, please let the man of God whom thou hast sent come to us again, that he may teach us what to do for the boy who is to be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah, and the angel of God came again to the woman as she was sitting in the field, but Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, and said to him, Behold, The man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. Then Manoah arose and followed his wife. And when he came to the man, he said to him, Are you the man who spoke to the woman? And he said, I am. Now he could have said yes. He could have said, that's right. Or he could have said, you're correct. But the word here, I am, has a greater impact here. I am. That's what God said his name was to Moses in the burning bush. And Manoah said, now when your words come to pass, what shall be the boy's mode and life of his vocation? So the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, let the woman pay attention to all that I said. She should not eat anything that comes from the vine, nor drink wine or strong drink, or eat any unclean thing. Let her observe all that I commanded. In this section of the chapter, we see that um, Manoah asked five questions, made requests before the angel of the Lord. And the answer he receives are four And for the instances of rebuke, Um, Manoah's wife probably had been a little bit more spiritually uh, sensitive and she didn't ask any questions. She just simply received the word of the Lord. (laughs) Manoah was much further uh, from sensing to understanding what was going on here. So in case we've missed the point, uh, the second visitation reinforces the fact that the message is for the woman. Though God hearkens to Manoah's prayer that the visitor come to us, the angel appears to the woman alone for the second time, not with him. You see that in verse 9. The angel is gracious, however, in waiting for Manoah to arrive, and is willing to talk with him. In answer to the questions about um, his son, the angel says that the duties are for the woman and describing them (coughs) says less to Manoah than he had said to the woman. So it seems as if there's nothing for the father to do here. Uh, It's He's less involved than the mother. Uh, It seems as if Manoah is almost being snubbed at this point. But theologically, Manoah simply has nothing to do with the new birth and the new beginning of uh, of his son. Now that's theologically speaking. So when the angel appears to the woman, she is once again alone in the field. Manoah is not with her. And the text emphasizes that it is God's miracle that brings this to pass. And it also stresses the total powerlessness of the fallen man. It's all of God and not of man. Verse 15. Then Manoah... Said to the angel of the Lord, Please let us detain you that we may prepare a kid for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Though you detain me, I will not eat your bread. But if you prepare a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, What is your name? so that you, so when your words come to pass, we may honor you. But the angel of the Lord said to him, Why do you ask my name, seeing that it is wonderful? That is mindful for me uh, of Isaiah 9, 6, uh, which it says, And he will be called wonderful somehow. Bibles put a comma after that, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father. Some just say Wonderful Counselor, but um, here we see him giving his name as Wonderful. Verse 19, so Manoah took the kid with the grain offering and offered it on the rock of the Lord, and he performed wonders while Manoah and his wife looked on. So it came about when the flame went up from the altar towards heaven that the angel of the Lord ascended in the flame of the altar. When Manoah and his wife saw this, they fell on their faces to the ground. Now the angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah or his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was in the presence of the Lord. So Manoah said to his wife, "We shall surely die, for we have seen God." But his wife said to him, "If the Lord had desired to kill us, he would not have accepted our burnt offering and our grain offering from our hands, nor would he have showed us all the things. Now <clears throat> nor would he have let us hear things like this at this time. We see here, with the final two questions of Manoah, uh, there is a shift from the focus. There's a shift from the focus of the message of the uh, Lord of God, the angel of God. So it's a shift from the message to the messenger. Uh, if you were to outline this chapter, you would say the emphasis was on the message in verse 13, 2 through 14, but that message, that emphasis is changed with the messenger, chapter 13, verses 15 through 23. Now this may sound a little bit familiar to you, so let's pause for a moment and compare this scene that we just read about, uh, the offering the Lord of, Angel of the Lord. And look, remember back to Judges chapter 6. Gideon makes the same offer to prepare a meal, and God is willing to eat with him. Gideon sacrifices a kid, an animal that symbolized youth, just as Manoah offers a kid for his future son. Gideon is fearful after seeing the angel of the Lord just as Manoah was. After the sacrifice, God states that there's peace between them, and affirming that what was offered was a peace sacrifice, and thus a communion meal. However, God refuses to eat with Manoah, as well as symbolically the nation of Israel. We see, like I said earlier, God is openly at war. He's not at peace with the sinful country of Israel. So what is needed here is a whole burnt sacrifice, a confession of sin and judgment before God can commune with his nation once again. Communion can only come about after reconsecration of a person. And in the Old Covenant, that involved a whole burnt offering, burnt sacrifice. It also required approval of the man's works through grain offering. That would be acceptable to God. So when Gideon, with Gideon, God ignited the fire. He ate the food and vanished from sight. Here, however, something more amazing happens. While the kid is being burned up, the angel steps onto the altar and goes up in flames. This is a symbol or the picture of the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the altar being offered up on behalf of his people. After I retired from public schools, I taught at Siena Heights University for three years, and one of the classes I taught was called Turning Points in History, and this would be one of those turning points in history as far as the nation of Israel is concerned. This great turning point was needed at this time for the nation of Israel. God had sent his son, be the substitute and history then can turn around and Israel can be delivered from the Philistines because Christ had died Samson can live God's holy child substitutes for the child of Manoah and his wife so when the angel goes up in flames it's a picture that God himself will take the punishment for men that we deserve. The angel will not give his name. Uh, this shows that, that uh, he's, he's truly God. The name that he does offer is, is wonderful, and that's explained in the next verse, because he performed many, many wonderful uh, miracles. The unexpected surprises that God brings into history are his miracles or his wonders. Sometimes he does this in a humorous way uh, in order to reserve the expectation, reverse the expectations of both the um, wicked and the righteous. We know that God did wonders in Egypt, and God here does wonders again in front of Manoah and his wife. So there will be a new exodus from this bondage under the Philistines. Because God is a God of wonders, we cannot put him into a box. We think we might have God all figured out. But because he's a God of wonders, there's no way that we can anticipate. We can't say, well, if we do this, God's going to do that. If we do that, God's going to do this. If we could figure that out, he wouldn't be God. It would be crazy for the creation to be able to know everything of the creator. So there's no way for us to understand him fully. So God is always a God of surprises. And the more childlike our faith, the more delighted we are, Uh, When we shall see him on a daily basis, we see the newness of each day. We see the newness of God uh, as we come to him in a childlike faith. And he will continue to surprise us, I I believe, in many different ways. So Samson, the surprised child, will uh, do one funny, wondrous thing after another. And that's to be a sign to Israel that God's sovereign holiness, he's in control And he's running the show, and he has a plan, and he will carry that out. But some theologians may say that God's wonderfulness means that man cannot understand him at all. But that's not what we find here. God did wonders, but Manoah and his wife looked on. So we can indeed see God's wonders... And we can know much about him through those wonders. And one thing that we know is that we can't put him in a box. We can't tie him down. He will amaze us again and again and again. So when Manoah sees these wonders, he realizes who it is that he's been talking to. And his response is an appropriate one, that of Fear. They fell upon their face before a holy God. When's the last time you fell on your face before a holy God? I know it's been a long time for me. Up to now, Manoah has been spiritually blind, and so no communion has been possible. But now, however, on the other side of this miracle, his eyes are opened and he is surprised that the judgment does not fall upon him and his wife. So we realize that because of the sacrifice, peace has been restored. His wife, spiritually more aware, realizes that God has a purpose for them. And it's not going to he is not going to curse them with death. Verse 24. Then the woman gave birth to the son and named him Samson. And the child grew up and the Lord blessed him. And the spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahana Dan, between Zorah and Esdorah. Samson's name means son so here's another fulfillment of Deborah's prayer if you recall back in judges 531 she prayed that God's children would be like the sun in its might so we see here a fulfillment of that prayer for Deborah now this is important for us to keep in mind uh, over the next couple of chapters We are told that God blessed Samson, and he grew up. And we are told that the Spirit stirred him to great works. We need to keep that in mind as we read uh, the next couple of chapters. For uh, At the first glance, some of the things that Samson does seems to be um, morally wrong. But we have to keep in mind that at this point... um, Samson is under the guidance of the Spirit. We'll see how all that works out. Now, I don't know about you, but uh, sometimes when I read the scriptures, I tend to get tunnel vision. Um, I know uh, from growing up and singing songs that uh, there is this golden thread of salvation and redemption that runs through all of scripture. But sometimes I get narrowly focused on a single passage or a single group of verses and I fail to see God's big picture working out his plans of salvation and redemption. We see here in Judges 13 again the third theme of God's plan that man is lost in sin but God takes steps to save him. So in order to get the full picture of what's going on here in the history of redemption at this point, we have to kind of uh, put Samson together with Samuel. We need to zoom back a little bit if it, and avoid being too focused on chapter 13 here and look at a broader forces at work to get a real proper perspective of what's going on. So according to Judges 13.1, Israel was in bondage to Philistia for 40 years. And this bondage ended with the Battle of Mizpah found in 1 Samuel 7, 7-13. And the Battle of Mizpah happened 20 years after the Battle of Aphek, 1 Samuel 7.2. And that's when the ark was briefly captured. Samuel was a youth just coming into his ministry at the time of the Battle of Aphek, when Eli died, 1 Samuel chapters 3 and 4. So putting all of this together, we can get a chronological view of what's happening at this time. About the time the Philistines' bondage began, God separated the mother, appeared to the mother of Samson, and she conceived. At the same time, God answered the prayer of a barren Hannah, and she conceived. And both children were Nazarites born of barren wombs. So they formed a testimony of two witnesses to Israel that God was, what he was doing was something new, something different to save them. When Samson was about 20 years old, God began to stir him up, and he offered marriage to a Philistine girl. This would have been about the time of the Battle of Aphek, when the Philistines took a much stronger hold over Israel. At this time, Eli died, and Samuel began his public ministry. And God restrained the severity of the Philistine oppression during this time last 20 years of the 40 years for two reasons first uh, he restrained their oppression because Samson's wild and unpredictable activity against uh, Philistia and the second reason that the oppression was eased up is because the Ark of the Covenant uh, had been captured and it frightened the Philistines greatly and it made them treat Israel much more carefully 1 Samuels chapters 5 and 6. So at this time when Israel was so thoroughly uh, compromised by sin, a new birth was needed. He looked around, (coughs) we look around today and we think of the same thing. Look how compromised our nation is with the sin of the world. And we think that a new nation, a new beginning, is required. So we pray for revival to sweep across our land. So we've already looked at the new birth theme in, in uh, Judges 13, and so I want to take a briefly look at the same thing in 1 Samuel 1 through 3. Uh, we have noted the barrenness of Hannah and the miracle of birth of Samuel. We also find the problem is pictured symbolically uh, in the tabernacle in 1 Samuel 3. In 1 Samuel 3 it says Eli was going blind and at the same time the lamp of the tabernacle was going to go out. Verses 2 and 3. Samuel 3. These two things go together. They are explained by the phrase that the word of the Lord was rare in those days and visions were infrequent. Verse 1 of chapter 3. So what we have here is that the light was going out and the word was not going forth. And So one night the Lord visited Samuel in the dark of the tabernacle and God gave him his word to Samuel. Scripture tells us up until that time, Samuel did not know the Lord, verse 7, chapter 3. This experience was a new birth for Samuel, and it enabled him to give a new word word to Israel. We talked about a couple of weeks ago how the doors symbolized new birth, so we kind of see this happening here with Samuel. Just as the doors of Hannah's house had been closed until opened by God's miracle. So Samuel is the one who opens the doors of God's house in verse 15. And when Samuel comes out of the tabernacle through the doors, like coming forth from the womb, he comes out as one who was born again for a second time. Now there's a message from God, and the message of judgment is on the old guard. And Samuel declares that judgment, and he declares it on Eli's household. Thus, the theme of radical new beginnings is present here with Samuel, as it was with Samson. There is a third aspect to God's work at this time, and it has to do with the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. Now remember, the Ark is usually found in the Holy of Holies, in the tabernacle, and it's the place where God reveals his presence. Uh, <clears throat> and once again, uh, uh, on the Day of Atonement, the priest would go in and offer sacrifice on behalf of the people. So the capture of the uh, Ark is a picture of God as a substitute for his people. God himself goes into captivity with Philistia. So all the parallels here are, are like the exodus from Egypt. God declares war against uh, the false gods. Remember how Dagon was found prostrate in front of the ark. And he visited plagues upon Philistia, just like he did the Egyptians. He, there was death and there was tumors on the bodies of the people. And as the ark is sent away, it is adorned with the spoils, like the spoils of Egypt coming out with the people. Here the ark is given golden tumors and golden mice. So the Philistines understood this fully, (coughs) what was happening, that the God of Israel was in control. So this new bondage in Exodus makes it possible that a new beginning for Israel, just as the angel that was offered himself as a sacrifice to make it possible for the birth of Samson. So the ark goes into captivity and oppression to make it possible for the freedom of Israel. So it is the beginning of deliverance and it will not come in completion with Samson, but eventually the completion is under King David and King Solomon. So that's different than what we've seen in the past. So all this is going on while Samson judges Israel. It's not all written in the theology of the book of Judges, but it is part of biblical theology as a whole. So I believe it was important that we take notice of it. It's entirely possible, given the chronology, that Samson's youthful offer of marriage, which was really a symbol of salvation to the heathen people, Comes at the same time as the captivity of the ark. And it's certain that Samson's destruction of the five lords of the Philistines and much of the Philistines' nobility happened just before Israel defeated the Philistines at the Battle of Mizpah. So, from the perspective of 1 Samuel, Israel is able to defeat Philistia because of the whole burnt sacrifice that takes away the sins. Other people, and you can read about how the people begged Samuel to perform a whole burnt sacrifice on their behalf in Judges or 1 Samuel 7, 8 through 11. But from the perspective of Judges, that same victory is due to the final and mightiest work of Samson, the anointed one, who shattered Philistia with uh, and made certain their defeat. So we have two perspectives, one from the book of Judges, one from the book of Samuel. Both of them are true. Both of them happened at the same time. And both of them were necessary for the freedom of Israel. Any thoughts or comments before we close? Okay. So we've got time for a short song. So let's just sit and sing the doxology. We'll do it a cappella. God had blessed Israel, and God continues to surprise and bless us today. Somebody get us started? Praise.